Good morning, everyone. My name is Luke Hazelmeyer. I am one of the executive pastors here at Vineyard Northwest. And before I go into my message, I wanna give one last kind of like reminder and appeal to all of you. On September 18th, you've probably heard me talk about it before if you've been here at all in the last few months. September 18th, we're having the uh, EP recording worship night here at Vineyard Northwest, taking all the chairs out of the auditorium, setting up in the middle, and I actually sent out the demo versions of those songs this morning. So if you've registered, you've gotten the demo versions of those songs. They're not the official ones, but they're the ones you can use to learn the songs so that we can pack as many people in here as possible. You see, our hope is not just that we put out good music, you know, because there's tons of good music out there in the world. Our hope is that this EP, which we've named it the Provider EP, our hopes that the Provider EP is actually like a um, glimpse for people listening and watching of what like our worship, our, our unique, you know, not better than anyone else's, but our unique God-given worship culture is like. And we can't have that without you all being there. So please, as many of you that wanna come, you can still register when you do. Um, we'll do our best to quickly send you that link to let you download those demo version songs September 18th. Hope to see you there. Okay, so the title of my message this morning is Doubt and Deconstruction. And before I say anything about those two concepts, I recently listened to a pastor who did something I thought was cool. He read the passage that he was gonna teach on in the very beginning of his message, like we often do, but he actually had the whole room stand as he read it. So one last time, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet And uh, if you're able, and um, we kind of do this, his, what he explained was we do this to kind of like show the passage of scripture reverence, right? Like this is not just another story in another ancient book, like this is God's truth for us. So it's John 20, 24 through 29. This is what it says. But Thomas, one of the 12 who was called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, place your finger here and see my hands and take your hand and put it into my side. And do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you now believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You can be seated. So I used, I currently am the executive pastor here um, I used to be the young adult pastor along with Wilson Cochran here at Vineyard Northwest. And one of the like, blessings and one of the curses of being a young adult pastor is that one, there are so many people who I met when they were just horribly broken in life, like have gone through the worst of the worst and then I got to see them meet Jesus and see how Jesus totally transformed their life. And now they're, 
um, so many that are still passionate followers of Jesus, godly husbands and wives, godly mothers and fathers, um, advancing his kingdom with their lives. And so that's one of the great joys. But then you can probably guess one of the um, curses or one of the uh, not so fun parts is for those that I knew years ago who were on fire for God, right? Like passionate about him and nothing else, ready to lay their life down. And then over the years, some things happened. Um, events went this way and that. And long story short, they've fallen away from the faith. And so I, I, deep, I know people who I love dearly kind of in both of those camps. And for those that had that falling away experience, not all of them, but many of them struggled with doubt. And it started off as doubt maybe on one thing, maybe it was doubt on does God really still heal today, does God really speak as much as we say he does, whatever it might be. And starts, they, you know, it started with a doubt and you know, for some that, long story short, and then for, for maybe for some of these people, not all of them, it eventually landed them and I don't even think I believe in God anymore. You know, now I'm an atheist. And, and then some that went through doubt are you know, even stronger Christians than they were previously because doubt, as I'm gonna talk about, is not an inherently negative thing. And then some just aren't sure what they believe. And so what I hope to do this morning is really um, hit on three questions. The first one is this, how do we create an environment that combats the shame that people feel for having doubts? Because that's one of the uh, things that it's like the doubts aren't actually that bad for a person. The worst part of having the doubts often is, am I the only one that feels this way? Is there something wrong with me? Am I the weird one in this group now, et cetera? Second question, how do we respond to people who are having doubts in a way that maintains connection with them and helps them process their doubts, not shame them for their doubts or shame them for not being a good enough Christian to not have doubts. And then thirdly, how do we process our own doubts? I'm sure there are people in this room right now that have gone through doubt or are struggling with doubt right now. And so I hope to answer those three questions. And I thought a good place to start would be my own story with doubt. So I grew up a Christian, parents raised me to believe in God and, and the gospel and had a great, great foundation. And then I can remember my uh, senior year of high school in my AP European history class, I was sitting there and for the first time someone challenged what I believe. My social studies teacher, we were going through, um, Karl Mar we were studying Karl Marx and he quoted a famous line that Karl Marx said at one point that religion is the opiate of the masses. And then he went on to explain what that quote meant. And I remember sitting there and it was a really weird experience because again, no one had ever challenged what I believed in any kind of a way that impacted me, but that was the first time. And so as I'm hearing this, all of a sudden I feel the immediate need to start like refuting what was said. So obviously I don't stand up and argue with my teacher, but as my teacher goes into a lecture, I pull out a piece of paper and I start writing down all these arguments, you know, to refute what he had just said. And um, that was my first ever writing on apologetics, which would be a, something that I would be really into over the next few years. Um, and so yeah, that was like my first experience. And where that kind of sent me was I started to really think about this more. Now, the interesting thing was 
I wasn't really following Jesus really at this point. Like I was a Christian, I believed in God. I, I think I had a relationship with him, but I also really wanted to do my own thing too. And so I wasn't really following Jesus, yet I was craving to be able to disprove not only what my social studies teacher had said wrong, but anything anybody might say. And so I start to debate with not just um, you know, myself as I'm writing down, but actually some of my friends. And one of my friends I would move in with my freshman year of college, he was my roommate. He was an atheist and I started debating with him about whether God existed or not. And uh, a lot of you've heard this story before. Um, my, our debates would never really go well. It would almost always end in both of us being more entrenched in what we originally believed. And I remember just being frustrated after one night of debating with him and going into my room and sitting down. He went into his room and did whatever he did. And I just kind of sat there. And again, I'm not following Jesus at all at this point. I'm not, you know, I never read my Bible. I rarely ever pray. I have stopped even going to church that much. And I'm sitting down on my bed and I hear God speak to me and God said, Luke, how are you gonna lead anybody to believe in me if you're not following me yourself? And that was the moment where I fully gave Jesus my life. And I call that my born again, again moment. <laughs> and so I found this Bible my parents had given me. It was, it was kind of a kid's Bible, but not really. And it was ripped in half. So it was just Isaiah through the New Testament. <laughs> so I never read it before. I guess the Lord was like, this will be good enough to get him started. <laughs> um, so I opened it up and started reading in the book of Philippians that day on, uh, I guess it was April 12, 2010. That's my born again, again, birthday. And so I started this journey of following Jesus and basing my life after Jesus and all of this anger and all of these bad habits and all of this sin that I've been engaged with just started falling off as I pressed into my relationship with God. Um, and something that helped fuel me in those early days, which I'm so grateful for, is apologetics. And if you're not familiar with that term, I've used it a few times. It's basic apologetics when you, um, when you make an apologetic argument in the context I'm talking about. You're making an argument, a logical argument for why God exists. Or you're refuting a logical argument that an atheist might use for why God doesn't exist. So that's apologetics. And so... I started reading, uh, who all has heard of C.S. Lewis or read any C.S. Lewis? Started reading C.S. Lewis and some others. And I'm doing this kind of like as my faith is in its infancy and it's helping spur me on because I was already passionate about getting people to believe in the existence of God even before I really was following Jesus. So fast forward, I was up at my family's property in New York with my dad and brothers. We were um, deer hunting and uh, that there was Black Friday happened over that time and because we would go for Thanksgiving. And on Black Friday, we went out and shopped and I, I bought this C.S. Lewis Bible that I still use to this day. It's just a Bible with a bunch of C.S. Lewis quotes that go along with what the scripture's saying. It's not like his version of the Bible, so no one freak out. Um, <laughs> um, and then I also bought this book called Godless and it was a book of trying to disprove the existence of God. 
And I bought it because I thought, you know what, if I read this, I can learn even better how to dismantle the arguments of an atheist because I'll read it from them themselves. So I opened the book up and I read it and all of the arguments that I read, I felt like I had an answer for. I might've just been arrogant or overconfident, but I felt like I had an answer for every argument. None of the arguments shook me, but something did shake me in that book. And what shook me is the, there was a chapter he wrote about his deconversion from Christianity into atheism. And it's, tells his whole story going from a Christian, accepting Jesus, becoming a pastor, becoming a worship leader, becoming a missionary, all of that to eventually land in atheism. And something about reading that shook me. And it shook me in a way that would take me years to fully overcome. And so I started to have doubts about God's existence. And it was weird because I was reading my Bible every day. I was like leading, a, I was a part of a high school ministry and leading a small group. And I worship, whenever I worshiped, I put my hands up and like I, I wasn't like falling away like in my practice. Um, and I, I, was, I was talking to God and I feel like I was hearing him too. So I hope you understand that. But what was also happening in the midst of all of that was I had this nagging feeling that does God really exist? Does God really exist? Maybe he doesn't exist. Maybe everything you're believing is just like self-help, good, good thinking that's helping you, but it's not actually real. And I couldn't shake these doubts. I would dive even more, and I dove so deep into reading more books about why God exists from all kinds of authors, Tim Keller and William Lane Craig and all these people, um, but none of it really helped. And specifically, I would wake up in the middle of the night and that's when it would be the worst. Like I would wake up at night. Like during the day, I'd do, I could do a pretty good job of shoving down the doubts, but at night I'd wake up and just be like, there's no way God exists. Like this all has to be something I'm just making up in my head. And side note, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna waste too much time here, but the reason you wake up in the night like that and your mind goes to subjects like that is that the part of your brain that, can, that helps you focus is impaired in the middle of the night because it's resting. And when your brain is unfocused, it typically drifts into the things that you feel unresolved in your thinking. And so I think that's kind of what was happening for me along with, I think, probably attack from the enemy. And so uh, this happened the other night on a different thing and I like sat up and focused myself more than I usually would and prayed and then I fell back asleep. So try that if you want. So... Um, so I'm having these doubts, right? And then as I'm having these doubts, I didn't know this consciously, but subconsciously, I had the mindset of, well, if I can just come up with a great response of why Christianity is indeed logical and reasonable um, for anything an atheist might say, any challenge an atheist might make, if I can just have a good response for that, it'll help me deal with my, these doubts that I'm feeling. And so... Um, I started looking at all of the different aspects of Christianity that atheists have issues with, like hell, like um, suffering in the world, like the Bible, is it really true? And I entered in, I didn't, did not know this term, and I did not know this is what I was doing, but I entered into this deconstruction phase of my personal walk with the Lord, where I started questioning all these things that I believed forever, and um, re-examining them, and I came to a different belief on a lot of them. I deconstructed the 
um, idea of hell that I had learned and came to a much more like universalist, like everyone gets saved kind of a place. Um, I, in that time, I deconstructed what I had believed about the, uh, yeah, about marriage really, about like a lot of things about marriage. One, is it just between a man and a woman? That's one thing I deconstructed. Um, second was, do you, uh, do you really need to wait to have sexual relations before you're married or can you make a commitment to somebody that is you know, genuine and will God look at that as like the important thing and, and all kinds of stuff and I deconstructed and my faith looked radically different then than it does now or than it did when I grew up. Um, but that happened to me and um, I could name a bunch of different things but I hope you can see the picture, you see the point that all the stuff that I had believed and all the stuff that I even believe now, I started deconstructing it and um, saying I no longer believed it because I wanted my faith to appear very reasonable and rational to someone, you know, like an atheist. And so, thought that would help, that didn't help either. And, um, and I'm still having these nagging doubts all the, all the time and then one particular night, I had just watched this like crime TV show that was disturbing, and it was fictional, but it was the kind of thing that would probably happen in real life. And so I'm driving home late at night after having watched that and just thinking like, gosh, like I know that happens, and how can there be a good God with stuff like that happening in the world? And all of a sudden I start to feel the doubts, like, kind of like, they would kind of like come on at some point. I started to feel them coming on and the best way I can describe it is it would feel like they would like be rising slowly and I would try to push them down. I could usually do that. Um, but this time, everything I was doing to try to push these, doubt down, these doubts down wasn't working. And so they keep rising, keep rising, keep rising. And I'm sitting in my car at a traffic light. I turn on the radio, Christian radio, hoping that'll help. The cheesiest Christian song ever comes on. And so I turn it off quickly. And... Doubts keep rising, and eventually, I kind of just look to the side, and I'm like, all right, here it is. I'm about to lose my faith. And it's been a good two years, but it's about to go. And it almost did. But I wanna pause my story right now, because I think that um, maybe some of you in the room can relate with that. Maybe you, there's people close to you that can relate with that story. Maybe that's you right now. Maybe there's something going on. Um, there's doubts you're having. Maybe you've gone through some deconstruction and this is where you are. And I wanna circle back to those questions I answered earlier. I wanna talk about what can we do to create an environment that combats shame for people that are having doubts? How do we respond to people who are having doubts in a way that maintains connection with them, helps process their doubts, and how do we process our own doubts? So for the rest of my time, that's what we're gonna be taking a look at. And don't worry, I'm gonna finish my story in a second. So as we're talking about doubt, I think it's really important that we understand that there are different kinds of doubt. Um, doubt is not, a very, it's not like a simple concept, it's really a complex concept. And so I wanna go through five different kinds of doubt that um, you might experience. First one is called, I called it simple uncertainty. And the phrase that, so that kind of helps you figure out what that means is, I think that might be true. Simple uncertainty is I think that might be true. So maybe you're cooking a new meal and you have, or sorry, I think that might not be true. 
Maybe you're cooking a new like meal and you have doubt as to whether it's gonna taste good. Or maybe you're on your way somewhere and you have doubt as to whether you're gonna make it on time, right? It's just simple uncertainty. It's just simple, I don't know if that's true. Maybe um, if you're new around here and you've heard us share some testimonies about God miraculously healing someone, maybe this is you where you're like, you know, I wanna believe that, that sounds amazing, but I just have some, I just have a little bit of, I just, part of me wonders if that really could be, you know? Simple uncertainty. And this is, it's not um, disbelief. This kind of doubt is not disbelief, it's more like a confliction of belief. It's kind of like a part of me thinks that could be true or that is true, a part of me is not sure. And we see this in the Bible in Mark chapter nine. Um, I'm not gonna read it for this just because I wanna get through this more quickly. But uh, basically, Mark 9, 20, 20 through 24, there's this guy whose son is demonized and having epileptic seizures. And he walks up to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, if you can help, please help. And Jesus is like, if I can. And he's like, all things can be done for the one who believes. And then the guy's response to that is, I believe, help my unbelief. He had a confliction of belief. A part of him really did believe and trust Jesus. A part of him was doubting. That's simple uncertainty. The next one is experience-based doubt. So the phrase associated with this is, based on the experiences of my life, that's probably not true. Maybe you've been let down over and over again by church leaders at different churches you've gone to. And so now when you meet a new church leader, even if they seem warm, even if they're smiling, even if they seem kind, a part of you is like, but they probably are gonna burn me in the end, right? Um, It's doubt that comes from pain that you've had and influences the way that you operate today. The next kind of doubt is bias-based doubt. So based on what I already believe, that's probably not true. This is when you don't trust a certain media outlet, you're automatically doubtful of anything they say, you know, whatever side you're on. This is the Pharisees toward Jesus. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but they're like, wait a minute, our bias towards what the Messiah is supposed to look like is this, so you can't be the Messiah. Next kind of doubt, this is just called general pessimism. A lot of things seem to, a lot of things that seem true turn out not to be true. And this is just kind of when your general outlook on life is negative. So if you ever suspect that someone is naively believing something or has kind of like unfounded optimism, you're basically automatically doubtful and skeptical of whatever they're saying. This was Thomas in the Bible. You know, we know we read earlier the classic passage of Doubting Thomas. There's another passage where uh, Jesus and the disciples are going to a certain place and, and Thomas is like, well, if we go there, we're definitely gonna die. You know, he just kind of, <laughs> it's John 11. He's just kind of this like pessimist, right? And the great quote I read as I was studying for this by a commentator named Dodds. Thomas is the pessimist among the disciples and he had the gloomy and as it is proved, the correct view of the result of Jesus' return to Judea, but his affectionate loyalty forbids the thought of allowing Jesus to go alone. Cool redeeming quality there for Thomas. He is the pessimist, but he said he still went with Jesus to that place. And then the fourth kind of doubt I wanna talk about, and I wanna spend a little bit more time here, is loss of confidence or its deconstruction. You know, this is, I once felt very confident that was true, but now I'm not sure. 
So I wanna make a few comments about deconstruction. Um, you've heard me talk about it, you've heard my personal example of it. Um, I could probably define it a million ways, but really what deconstruction is, is questioning and then refuting or deciding to keep a belief that you've had for a while. And so <clears throat> I wanna say some things about deconstruction, both to anyone listening or anyone in the room who is deconstructing, but also to those who know someone who's deconstructing. And I wanna start with you. So first, I don't think it's helpful to view or talk about deconstruction in an inherently negative way. To view it as a bad thing, I don't think is helpful or even true. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse five, Paul says, we destroy arguments in every lofty thing or every lofty ideology raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That word destroy can also be translated deconstruct. We deconstruct ideologies that are raised up against the knowledge of God, right? So deconstruction is actually not a new thing. It's been happening since the first century of the church. Um, Martin Luther, he slapped 95 deconstruction points up on the door of the Catholic Church. Van, if you've heard our senior, our co-founding pastors, Van and Lori, they were in a um, church tradition that did not believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were alive and active today, healing, prophecy, and they went through a period of deconstruction about that. So deconstruction is actually a really good thing, and it all depends upon what you're deconstructing, right? And even questioning a true belief is a good thing because it can allow you to more confidently believe what's true. Um, obviously, when you deconstruct something that um, is true and then you refute it in the end, that's not helpful or good for you because you don't wanna believe something that's not true and you don't wanna not believe something that is true. So we shouldn't view it as inherently negative. Second thing I wanna say to you, if you know someone, I don't think it's helpful to talk about deconstruction like it's a fad the young people are into right now. <laughs> and maybe you've seen that, maybe you haven't, um, but I've, some, Christ, some Christian leaders and teachers I've just seen say things that, kind of treat anyone who's deconstructing like they're a part of this trendy movement that's happening, right? And I don't think that's helpful. And in all my experience with talking with people who are deconstructed, who have deconstructed, who are um, post-Christian or still Christian, um, not one of them has really loved it that they were deconstructing or really enjoyed it or even wanted it to be happening. Jamie and I were having dinner with a couple a few months ago who have gone through this, and in tears, they looked at us and said, guys, we fought, for so hard. we fought so hard and for so long to hold on to our faith and to hold on to what we believe in our relationship with God, but we just got to a point where um, we couldn't, and they had gone through some major trauma that had kind of led to that. And Jamie and I just listened, understood, empathized, had compassion for them, right? And that's not the only couple or the only person that has told me with tears about their deconstruction experience. So um, to kind of like call it this cool trend that people are doing is not honoring to, to at least the kind of person that I've seen. Um, I just don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's helpful in actually ministering to those people. Could there be someone who's like, yeah, I'm gonna jump on this bandwagon and do it? Sure, but I've not met any. And if I, if I did, maybe I would talk to that person a little differently. But you get my point. 
Third, I don't think it's helpful to share dogmatic opinions about how a person should and shouldn't deconstruct. Like, um, I've seen some social media posts by people saying something like, you know, deconstruct all you want, as long as it's biblically based deconstruction that leads you to more passion for Jesus. And do I want that for a person? Yes. But what if the person deconstructing is having doubts about the credibility of the Bible? To say to that person, hey, um, just make sure your deconstruction is biblically based and you're all good. That's not really gonna be helpful for that person. The very thing that, that they are having doubts about is the thing that you're telling them to trust, right? Now, should they? Yes, I believe the Bible is 100% true. I think biblically-based deconstruction is what Martin Luther did. It's what um, anyone, who's ever anyone who's ever deconstructed bad religion has done it with the Bible, not without the Bible. And so, yes, it's a good thing, but it's not always helpful. To, to sh and it, just sharing dogmatic, you have to do it this way. If you don't, you're an idiot, is not gonna be helpful to the person. Now, to those of you who are deconstructing, um, I just have a few things I wanna share with you. First, try to understand the different factors that are leading you to deconstruct. So um, many different things go into a person that kind of leads them to deconstruct. And a uh, pastor out in, in uh, Portland named John Mark Comer he shared a message about this and shared six things that he's seen that lead to people, lead people to this deconstruction place. So failure of Christian leaders, like moral failure, the radicalization of political ideologies, consumerism and church culture, a lack of the fear of the Lord, social media overload, and then, and the most common one, pain, that just traumatic pain and hurt can often be the thing that leads someone into deconstruction. And so, if you are currently deconstructing right now at the right time to actually try to identify, like, what is going into this right now? Did I get really hurt by the last pastor at the church I was going to? And is that majorly playing in with this? Did I experience major pain in X, Y, and Z, and is that leading me here? Did I just, was I just so outraged by, you know, some of these Christian leaders recently like Ravi Zacharias and some others who have had moral failures, was I just so outraged by them that um, that kind of is playing into this? Um, take some time to figure out what is playing into your desire to deconstruct. I wish I would have done that when I was deconstructing myself. I'm glad I went through it. I'm glad everything that I learned as I did it, but to know what was kind of pushing me that direction would have been helpful. Um, second thing I wanna say to you, if you are deconstructing is, at the right time, deconstruct what is leading you to deconstruct. <laughs> if it's pain, take a second and really look at that. Like, what is my pain telling me? What is true that my pain is telling me? right now? What is not true that my pain is telling me right now? Um, get someone else, someone else you trust's opinion on that. Uh, if it's maybe um, you've had a shift politically lately, you've gone left, more left, or gone more right, you were right, and you've gone left, you were left, and you've gone right, and that's been big in your life right now, maybe take a second, and, and that's kind of contributed to your deconstruction. Take a second and be like, 
um, what are the predominant messages that I'm hearing from this political ideology? Which of them really makes sense? Which of them are not as logically founded? Like deconstruct that. Deconstruct what's led you to deconstruct. And wherever it takes you, you're gonna be closer to truth if you do that than if you don't. And then my third piece of advice for you would be to go slow. I could say more about that, but um, I told the Lord once, I was feeling, I, I was feeling doubt about something. I told him, Lord, I feel like I'm gonna change my belief about this, but I'll wait five years to actually make it official. <laughs> and that gave me peace. That was really helpful. I ended up not actually changing that belief. I'm glad I didn't. Okay, so there's other forms. So those, so those are the five forms of doubt. There's other forms of doubt. Um, but let's get into the passage on Thomas now before we run out of time. So, so yeah, uh, doubting Thomas, right? That's kind of like the iconic passage that we think of in scripture that deals with doubt. And let's take a closer look at that because I think there are some things we may have missed, at least that I have missed upon reading it before. So in verse 24, um, just to remind you, it, in that verse, it basically describes how there were all the disciples but Thomas were, um, wait, saw Jesus, right? And then Thomas came on the scene. And so uh, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared. And I think we tend to think that, oh, the other 10 who were there, they didn't have any doubt because they got to see Jesus and Thomas is the one person who had doubt. But if we look in a different gospel that helps fill in the story more, in Luke 24, verse 41, it says this. Let's throw that up. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and astonishment, he, Jesus, said to them, have you anything here to eat? So actually what happened was the first 10 saw Jesus took them a while to actually believe. They actually had doubt with him sitting right in front of them. And so um, we tend to think Thomas was the only one that doubted, but they doubted as well. And if you're experiencing doubt, you probably feel alone in some way or another. I know I felt that way. I feel like no one, really, no one can really understand me. All these people around me, they just believe this easily, and I'm the one fool who can't believe it, right? And I wanna tell you, you are not alone. There are so many people in this room who have gone through what you are going through right now, and there are probably people in this room who are going through what you're going through right now, but you just haven't spoken up about it. And so then I wanna turn to the rest of us and say, this is why it's so important that we actually share about our own um, struggles with doubt. You know, it's not like holy or extra righteous or God's not rewarding you for like never talking about a time when you had a doubt. Like sharing about your doubt is actually healthy. It ministers to the people around you and allows you to process it with your community rather than just with your own brain that will play tricks on you sometimes. So you're not alone. Then in verse 25, like we read before, uh, Thomas reveals his disbelief, right? He says, I don't know what all you guys believe, but unless I touch the imprint in his hand and in his side, I will not believe. And I want you to notice here that Thomas is not just experiencing simple uncertainty. He's not just like, ah, I just don't know if I can believe it, guys. Like, I wanna believe it. No, he's like, no, I will not believe it unless these conditions are satisfied. 
And so Thomas, um, again, he wasn't, he wasn't experiencing simple uncertainty. And it's, as I was reading this, it occurred to me that Thomas didn't say, okay, let me rewind. When the disciples saw Thomas, what did they say to him? They said, we've seen the Lord. And then his response isn't, well, if I see the Lord, then I'll believe. Instead, he said, well, if I touch the imprint in his hand and the imprint in his side, then I'll believe. So just seeing the Lord in Thomas's eyes wasn't enough to actually believe that he was really risen. What does that tell us? That tells us that Thomas didn't actually trust the judgment of the other 10 disciples. He, probably were, he was probably looking at them like, okay, all of you naive idiots, you probably like saw an angel or maybe like um, there was a small earthquake and the table rattled and you thought that was Jesus. Like, like he's saying, whatever you saw is not enough. This is what really we would need to see to believe that Jesus is back. And so there was kind of this like intellectual superiority complex that Thomas had. Like, um, I really know how to critically assess and evaluate this situation. You all don't, so let me tell you how it is. <laughs> and I can identify with that. That was kind of me when I was dealing with doubt. I kind of felt like everyone else just is less intellectual than me or something. And for the sake of time, let me just get right down to the point. Um, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, Paul says, don't be children in your thinking, but be adults in your thinking. But then at the same time, Jesus says that whoever does not change and become like a child will not enter the kingdom of God. So you kind of have this tension of like childlike faith on one side is what we're called to, and then like critical thinking, mature thinking is the other. And those two sides tend to look down on each other. The childlike faith people tend to look down on the critical analyzers and be like, you all are just way too skeptical, you just need to have faith, right? And then the critical analyzers and, and uh, you know, the, the more Thomases, they, they look down on people with childlike faith and they say, you're just naively optimistic, you are easily deceived, you're gullible, right? And I think the truth is somewhere in between those two tensions. And I think rather than like, view each other as wrong or idiots, what if we had grace and patience for each other and we saw the good in each other, like in the different ways that we're wired? And, um, and then we actually tried to grow in the other thing. You know, I think this is why, this is why, uh, sorry, I'm trying to rush through this. This is why Jesus says to Thomas, You've seen me and you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. What I think he's saying to him is like, look, your critical thinking is good, but I want you to grow in childlike faith. I want you to grow and be able to uh, believe without even seeing. So however you're wired, if you're wired more on the, I'll believe it, try growing in the other place. If you're wired more to be a critical thinker, try growing in childlike faith. Okay. There's a lot of good stuff here, guys, so if you want it, come talk to me later. But <laughs> um, let me just finish my story. So I'm in the car, doubts are rising, rising, rising. I look over and I'm like, this is it. I'm about to lose my faith. And 
I didn't plan to, to do this or say this. It just kind of came out of me. And I think what was happening was the Holy Spirit who lives in me and lived in me then, even with my doubts, just like took over for a second and whoosh, like came out of me. And what I blurted out loud without thinking was, God, even if I doubt you for the rest of my life, I'm still gonna follow you. <laughs> and it was this powerful moment for me. And then, crazy enough, 10 minutes later, I'm almost to my house. I'm pulling up to this stoplight. And right before I'm about to go through it, the light turns you know, from green to yellow. And when it turns yellow, I could have easily made it through. But again, something in me just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just gonna stop. There's like no one on the roads, right? It was late at night. So I stop, I slam on the brakes, stop. And right as I stop at the stoplight, this enormous semi coming down a hill comes barreling through the intersection. I would definitely have died if I had not just randomly hit my brakes. <laughs> I look up like, okay, God. You know? <laughs> um, so I think that's a good place to end. Why don't you stand with me? <clears throat> Prayer teams, I'm gonna invite you to come forward. Let me just pray for all of us right now, um, whether you are experiencing doubt or you know someone who is, I just wanna pray God's grace and presence and anointing to come on us. So don't do this if this is weird for you, please. You can still receive without doing this, but if you wanna put your hands on your head to kind of like as an act of like, I'm going to receive this in my mind right now, do that. So Father, we welcome your grace and your anointing and your presence onto our thoughts in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus, that we are not alone, that you are with us. You're with us even more closely in our doubts. And give us the love and the compassion to help minister to people we know that are dealing with doubts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.